to today's episode with Pat Gallagher, Jake Hirschman here recording, and it's a beautiful day in West Lafayette. Pat, how are you in good old San Francisco? Uh, Jake, I'm doing great. Uh, looking forward to uh, uh, looking forward to this. This should be fun. Awesome. Well, Pat, as you know, we've got we've had Fred and Andy on, and you are our third superstar guest on this podcast. Um, really looking forward to to hearing you know your career path and everything that you've done in the sports industry. Um, you know, obviously, the why behind Life in the Front Office podcast is you know to help those who are currently in the sports industry and those who want to get in the sports industry and and really uh, help them flourish and and start the journey just as you did some odd years ago and. Um, would love you to introduce, you know, your career, where you began, obviously, as we pointed out with Fred and, and Andy's career, you know, there is no one path. And, you know, obviously, you, you came from uh, a unique start, and would love you to, to share upon that. Well, it, well, thanks, Jake. You know, I, I guess I'm, I'm sort of not sort of unlike Fred and Andy. Um, I didn't come from a sports background. Um, I played sports, but I was not a uh, you know, I never thought that this working in sports somehow would be something that I would do to make a living. So <clears throat> my start, I got my start in the theme park business uh, right at the bottom at SeaWorld in San Diego. Uh, you know, as one of those guys that uh, I did everything. I would sweep up cigarette butts. I would direct traffic. I would, uh, you know, I even trained animals for a short period of time. It was right after the, the park uh, opened up. And that was my first experience to really the entertainment business, which is sort of how I got into this whole thing. Uh, and then, um, you know, later on, I uh, had the opportunity uh, when I was living in the Bay Area, working for a park called Marine World Africa USA, the Giants were looking for a director of marketing. They'd never had a position like this before. The new owner, Bob Lurie, had purchased the team to keep it from moving to Toronto and he said, I need, I need somebody who can help me figure out a way to sell this. I, I, I threw my hat in the ring. I went and interviewed with him, a couple of interviews, and he'd offered me the job. And so I was the Giants' first director of marketing. And this was back in, oh, in November of 1976. So 1977 was my first season. And, uh, you know, the front office at that time was, I hate to say it, it was kind of almost like a mom and pop operation. I think there were 15 to 18 people in the front office and I was just one of them. Wow. And yeah, now today you got at least, you know, 120, 150 shoot uh, Purdue athletics here. We've got almost 300 people, you know, if you want to call that a front office as well. So it's, it's very interesting to see how it's, it's grown over the year. Take us, take us back to, you know, when you were first starting with the giants, I know you shared with me recently uh, one of the, the first mascots you had um, and kind of run through what that was like. Well, I mean, it was, again, I, 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 some of the stuff I wound up doing, it's frankly because I really didn't know any better. Um, I, uh, you know, if I'll set the scene for you, is that, you know, the Giants played for many, many years in Candlestick Park, which, which had the reputation of being one of the worst ballparks in baseball. The cold and the wind and the other conditions just made it sort of, for many games, sort of inhospitable. So it was... It was difficult. And then also during that time in the in the late 70s and the early 80s, um, you know, the Giants, um, I didn't really know what to expect. The Giants really were not that, frankly, they were not that good. And uh, 
So it was the combination of, uh, of trying to get people to come out to a ballpark that was terrible and a team that was sort of lackluster. Fortunately, I had an owner, Bob Lurie, who just said, just do what you need to do. So, uh, so we came out, I came out with this, this little award, which uh, was a little orange button that, um, that was a, had, had an SF on it with icicles hanging from it. It's called the Quad de Candlestick, almost like, you know, like the Quad de Guerre. And we, we awarded it to people who did the ultimate act of being a Giants fan, which was staying until the end of an extra inning night game. And um, it got a lot of visibility. You know, a lot of a lot of people said, "Well, wait a minute. It's cold, but it's not that cold." I mean, it's and so we it, it, that progressed into a uh, in the following year, 1984, we introduced which was the anti mascot, which was a which was a mascot called the Crazy Crab. Now, the Crazy Crab didn't start out to be a mascot; it was really just a television commercial. And we had this guy dressed up in a like a crab outfit, an orange foam rubber crab outfit with claws and you know he would do the moonwalk and would you know was a pretty good dancer would come out every game and would do his little routine and the fans would boo him off the field and usually his act usually lasted about 30 seconds now it's we did a commercial where we showed that and the whole idea was to show that Giants fans were different they wouldn't put up with something as silly and dumb as a traditional mascot um, we did a survey and 62% of the people we surveyed said if the Giants had a mascot, we would boo it. So we decided the television commercial got a lot of response. And since we had this costume, we figured, well, what the heck? So we put the mascot out on the field. I remember this is 1984. And the fans, just as we suggested, they actually booed the mascot off the field. So it was a shtick that lasted for a year. Um, you know, the Giants weren't going anywhere it's amazing that people still remember something that happened back in the, in the early eighties, but um, we got a reputation and I guess I got a reputation for promoting the giants in a fairly offbeat way. And by some miracle, I never got fired. Well, and, and your career continued and then, you know, give us a little background into where you went from there. Obviously you had uh, many endeavors that you entertained and go ahead. Well, I was the I was the Giants marketing director, and again, I, I had the opportunity to. Within a couple of years, I became the vice president of business operations. So I was actually running all the all sort of the if you say everything outside the white line, so to speak. And um, and we had several different ballot initiatives to try to get a new ballpark built, uh, which all failed. Um, and but we managed to sell it and managed to have fun along the way. And I think what happened, and, you know, the Bay Area is a pretty odd place. Normal things that happen in other parts of the country don't necessarily work here. Uh, people are suspicious of things. And they're, you know, anybody that visits here or lives here would tell you it's a little quirky here. So, um, so I was able to uh, uh, made it into the, into the, into the 90s. We had, the, we had our, our first uh, World Series was 1989. Uh, where we had an earthquake. And so I was in charge of the business and to try to figure out along with others, you know, sort of what to do when you have a major earthquake right before your first game of the world series. Yeah, that's a, that, that's a whole story in itself. And we progressed on with different ballot initiatives. And then I think by the, by the uh, early nineties, 
Um, Bob Lurie, we'd, we'd lost, I think, three or maybe four elections to try to get a new ballpark built. He, um, he in essence, he sort of threw his hands up and sold the team. And the team, the Giants were actually moving to Florida, to St. Per- Petersburg, Florida. You know, what I've learned in business, uh, too, is that sometimes things don't really happen until there's a crisis. And this was a crisis. And a local group of investors pulled together to keep the Giants in San Francisco and then, you know, after that, we had a whole new set of business issues. Um, it was uh, now with rather than one owner, we had, you know, a, a, a group of owners and we had sort of promised that we would figure out what to do with a with replacing Candlestick Park. We came up with a plan to privately finance a uh, stadium, which was difficult. Um, it had really never been done in baseball in sort of modern times. But we put together a plan, uh, had another ballot initiative in, uh, this was in um, 1996, I believe. And um, we asked people, uh, if we built a ballpark on the waterfront in San Francisco, would you support that? And San Francisco voters, two thirds of them supported it. Now, a third of the people said that if we built a free ballpark, uh, they, they, they didn't think it was a good idea. So we managed, I don't know where those people are today, but we managed to build uh, what was then called Pacific Bell Park. Now it's called AT&T Park. It sits right on the waterfront in San Francisco. And, you know, when you privately finance something like that, you have to do things that are, that are, that are a little different to make it happen. We had, to be, we had to create bigger, stronger relationships with sponsors. We had to create a culture uh, that, the, that we get all of the staff members and the cast to work together. And um, and since then, it's been, what, 18 years now that um, the ballpark's been open. Uh, the Giants have progressed to win three world championships, which I'm very proud of them. Uh, I left right before they did that. So my, my unkindest of friends said uh, they had to get rid of that one little bit of baggage before they could go on and win the <laughs> world championship. But I don't take it personally. And I still follow them very close to them. And then from there, I uh, I... I decided to leave to look at some other things. I, uh, I helped bring the 50th Super Bowl to the Bay Area, uh, which was about a two and a half year project, which was incredibly satisfying. We did a great job. I actually wound up writing a book about it, which uh, is out there, Big Game, Bigger Impact, which you can get or you can listen to on Amazon. And so, uh, and so I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm involved in a variety of projects, some in sports, some not, but, uh, uh, you know, I live to tell about it all. Yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, to think that you came from SeaWorld to, um, you know, talking about crabs as your mascot to all of a sudden running, you know, part of Super Bowl 50, it's pretty amazing to see how one's, you know, career path can shift and change and evolve over the years. And obviously, you've had quite the accomplishments. Um, one of the things that Andy had pointed out, and I think you alluded to earlier, was fun and, you know, what it is to be uh, in sports and working in sports and how it's fun. Right. And, and when I think about that, I think, well, okay, well, it's the people that you work with and that make it fun and talk, talk a little bit about some of the people you may have worked with along the way, you know, the friends that you may have made and, and kind of what it takes to build a culture and an organization, uh, like you were alluding to earlier. Well, I think when you sort of broaden your perspective about sports, professional sports, anyway, um, you know, there's the winning and the losing and all that. But the the whole purpose of this 
is to really to have fun. Now, it's no fun to lose, but you can make it fun whether you win or lose um, around the ballpark. And I would say that that was really a milestone for us is figuring out that we we didn't necessarily have to to live around the winning and the losing, but creating an atmosphere, creating a culture and a camaraderie where we, um, you know, we were going to put on a show 81 times a year at the ballpark. How do we make that as interesting and, and as, as fan friendly as we possibly can do? So a lot of the things that we did were, you know, were really based on that. Um, but I, I do think I, I've always sort of thought, thought that I was in the fun business, meaning, you know, I didn't I, I'm not selling life insurance. I'm not selling like burial plots. I'm not doing things. So all the things that nobody needs any of this stuff. I mean, nobody really needs baseball. And I say that, and I mean the people who work in it do. But you, you rather than, you know, the, the attitude in, in baseball, you know, really when I first arrived was it's our job as a baseball team to print, to print the schedule and sell tickets and, you know, make the hot dogs warm and the beer cold. It's your job as a fan to, to support us. Well, I never sort of bought into that. I figured that we ought to be deserved to be patronized. So, um, so I think you have to earn – you have to earn the respect. We're in, an, particularly in the Bay Area, an incredibly competitive environment. We not only compete against the Oakland A's, but everything they're also to do with entertainment. It's really where I first met my, my buddy, Andy Dolich, who was my fierce competitor with the Oakland A's. But, you know, underneath it all, we became, we became close friends and we're friends to this day. Um, and I think our attitudes about it were, were pretty similar in that, we, we, we had to make it com- we had to make a compelling reason for people to come to the games and we had to make it safe. We had to make it fun and we had to make it accessible. And we had to in- make sure that all all people would feel comfortable coming to the park. No, absolutely. And we'll take a quick break here, but we've got a story that uh, is definitely worth waiting around for and to hear. So. Uh, when we come back here after a brief message, we will uh, revisit that story with Pat. Uh, and to interact with Pat, Fred, Andy, and our other guests in further future episodes, please email lifeinthefrontoffice at gmail.com, and we will be certain to ask those questions and have our guests answer them. Thanks. And now we're back with Pat Gallagher, who has been kind enough to wait to share his story about his good old friend, Andy Dolich and Pat, take it away. Well, you know, Andy and I were, were competitors, you know, the, the giants and the A's as the crow flies is like eight miles across the Bay, but we're, you know, we're, we're in a competitive business. So I decided to play a trick on Andy, which turned out to, to be something that something way more than I thought. So in 1987, when the A's were hosting the, baseball all-star game. Um, it also co- was a coincidental that Andy was going to celebrate his 40th birthday during that same year. So if you do the math, you can tell how old he is. And so um, along with a friend, we actually got a billboard uh, on the freeway between Andy's house and the, uh, and the Open Coliseum. And it said, Andy Dolich is celebrating his 40th birthday by giving away free all-star tickets. And it had his uh, phone number on it. Um, the billboard company was owned by Gannett, who had USA Today. Lo and behold, they ran it on the inside front cover of the sports section. 
um, of USA Today, and it's a billboard of Andy's giving away free All-Star tickets. Well, people knew it was a gag. He still got a bunch of calls. And so this started this practical joke war that uh, both of our birthdays are in February. Mine's a few weeks later than he is. And so he, I came home one day and I had this 40-foot inflatable Oakland A's player in a like 15-foot bobblehead like right in front of my house. And um, both of us were sort of media savvy enough that we would, you know, we would, we would let people know that this was going to happen. So it set off about a seven or eight year practical joke war that was all in good fun. It got incredibly complicated. I can talk about all those at some other point, but, um, but it, it, the whole point was, is that, you know, if you're working in the fun business, you sort of might, might as well have some fun along the way. And that's what yeah, absolutely. People would do that today, but it was something that we did, and uh, and we it's it's good stuff for us to tell our children and our grandchildren. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, Pat, can you imagine if you had done that on social media now today? I that might get you in a little bit more trouble. Well, you know, I I went through a whole uh, it, it, for, for a number of years. I, Bob Lurie, who was our owner, I you know every year at the end of the year, I I sort of expected to get fired for a variety of reasons. Uh, I worked my tail off, but I, and so later on, I asked him uh, about that. And he said, well, why would I fire you? Who else could I get to do this job? <laughs> and so I, we, we both had a good laugh about it, but I've been blessed to be in the, in a business where, um, you know, where, where it's visible. Uh, there was no social media. You know, when, when I started in the business, the business has changed so much. You know, I mentioned that I think there were 18 to 20 people in the Giants front office in 1976. I, I uh, there, there's pretty close to 300 people now and they all do something. They all have, they all have functions, which is what I hope we can talk about on this podcast, bring in some of them to explain what it is they do. Um, these, these people, I mean, we're, we're, it's a regular business like any other business. We're regular people. We're not discovering the cure for any disease or we're not smashing atoms or any of those things. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to have fun and we're in the entertainment business and, um, it's a kick. A lot of people are, are interested in it. Right. And, you know, you talk about the entertainment business. Obviously, you know, 81 games a year doesn't cut it enough for people. They need more. So talk a little bit about Giants Enterprises, your time there, and, you know, all the different events that they put on, sure. quite frankly, 365. Well, we, when, when, the new ball, when the new ballpark on the waterfront in San Francisco was coming online, um, it totally changed our business. We went from being a tenant in an old rundown city, city owned stadium to in essence, owning and operating our own building. So, uh, so we said, well, what should we do with it when we're not playing baseball? You know, it ought to be perfect when we play baseball. So there really was no model. So I helped start a business called Giants Enterprises where we decided to get into the, the private event business the public event business. Um, so we, you know, we played football there. We played lacrosse there. We played soccer. Uh, we were, we were the, uh, we were the, the, the home of the one year wonder from the XFL, the San Francisco demons, which I'll point out still hold the single season uh, XFL attendance record. Uh, it, it's funny because it only lasted one season, but we sold more tickets than anybody else. But we did a bar of what we, you know, we had ski jumping, um, we did Supercross there. We did a lot of private events. The point was we tried to create a company, uh, a company that could take advantage 
of the manpower that we have, not just the facility. And so since then, Giants Enterprises has grown into a full-blown business, aside from the concerts and the motorsports and other types of games. We not only do private events inside the ballpark, but they have expanded outside the ballpark, helped put on things like the America's Cup in San Francisco. Uh, and, and now they do you know, running races, not only in and around the ballpark, but all over. And it's created just another business, another business for the Giants that we can do when we don't play baseball. Right. And I think you shed some light onto a, a, you know, a topic in that really it's just all about fun, whether it's sports, other events, weddings, et cetera. I mean, at the end of the day, people are having, trying to have fun and trying to be entertained. And no matter whether you're, you know, coaching third base or you're up in the, the suites entertaining people, right. At the end of the day, it's, uh, it's a business. Well, right. And I, the, one of the ways I described it in sort of in the book, and I've described it since, is that working in the entertainment business, working in, in essence in show business, which is what we are, it's in a way, it's sort of like being uh, in an iceberg. And what I mean by that is what happens right at the tip of the iceberg, the performances, the stuff that you see on TV, the stuff that you see at the stadiums really doesn't reflect the people below that, below the surface, you know, the cast, the supporting cast who are putting it all together, who are making it safe, making it fun. Um, it, 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 it's, it's putting on a show that requires a tremendous amount of effort and an amount of people. A lot of those people you never see. If you buy a ticket and go to a sporting event, go to a concert, you don't necessarily see the supporting cast, but, the, but it never would happen if they hadn't done their job. So, I hope that we can talk about some of that stuff on this uh, on this podcast to to let people know, uh, you know, what those jobs are like. Right. You know, you get to your SVP levels and your CEO levels and everyone kind of sees, you know, the people in in the limelight or at the you know visibility level. But the, the person doing the grunt work, right, is never really in the paper or on social media or any of that stuff. And yes, we'll definitely get to that in, in another episode. And, um, you know, talking about a little bit about the event side of things, you know, talk a little bit more about your book and, and your experience with Super Bowl 50, um, something kind of unique, obviously, to, to the event space and sports. Um, you know, how many ever million people are watching that? So go ahead. Well, I mean, it, 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 there had been up until uh, 2016, there had been one Super Bowl in the Bay Area. And it was played um, 1985 uh, at Stanford University Stadium, an 80,000-seat stadium. The Bay Area had wanted to have a Super Bowl here for a number. They actually bid on Super Bowls for a variety of reasons, but there was never, it never seriously considered as a site. Uh, this was, this was sort of all, all came to an end when the 49ers began to build their new stadium down Levi Stadium down in Santa Clara, a beautiful state-of-the-art football stadium. And so the mayor of San Francisco, um, the CEO of the 49ers, uh, Jed York, and he said, we ought to work together as a region to bid on a Super Bowl. So they, they tapped a local philanthropist named Daniel Lurie, who um, reached out to me and, and a number of others to say, would you guys be interested in doing this? We formed a small committee. We put together a plan and we went and pitched the, the NFL uh, on the on the idea of having either the 50th or the 51st Super Bowl here in the Bay Area, I write about this in the book because it was really fascinating. 
you know, we put together a 15 minute sales pitch. We have to go and deliver it in front of, you know, all the NFL owners and the staff and whatever. And then they decide uh, whether they'll do it. Um, they awarded us the 50th Super Bowl. Then we actually had to put a, a company together to actually deliver it. And for those people who don't know that, um, the Super Bowl is, is the, it's the NFL's game. But generally, there's a local host committee that comes together to actually make all the all the external things happen. Uh, hotels, events, transportation, security, and also also have to raise the money to make that happen. You bid on that. And so why would you bid on something like that? Well, aside from the prestige of having something like the Super Bowl, which is the largest one day sporting event in the world, it is a um, it's an economic driver. And so we put together a uh, uh, I, I did the I helped work on the bid as a volunteer. When we got the game, um, they asked me if I would come to work full time on it, which I did. I became the executive vice president of marketing partnerships and communications. We put together a small staff, uh, which is something else that Stephanie Martin, my co-writer, and I wrote about in our book of just how do you do this? How would you actually make this happen? How do you create a culture in a startup situation? How do you get people motivated when they, they're going to work on something that they know no matter how good of a job they do, they're going to be out of work in, uh, in a couple of years? So I kind of detail that in the book. And it is a uh, and so since then, I've been uh, it's been adopted by a number of uh, college sports uh, sports management programs. And Stephanie and I have Stephanie and I have gone to speak at some of them. Um, that's what we hoped would happen um, in that. You know, we could appeal to good people to say working in sports, in professional sports, amateur sports is something that you can do if you you, you go beyond having a, an interest in it. You can actually make it into a career. And so that's what we also hope happens is that, you know, we can we can talk to people and let them know how you do that. How do you approach it? I mean, I know you, Jake, you went through the sports management school. Uh, I never did that. Um, I was a, an art major in college. <laughs> I, I dropped I dropped out of school to go to work for SeaWorld, which I'm not necessarily proud of. So everybody has a different path of how they get into it. But I think life in the front office hopefully will give people a look sort of under the hood, so to speak, of what it takes to run a, a professional sports organization and what kinds of people, what do they think about, what do they care about, how did they get there? That's really the, some of the things that we hope to cover. Well, Pat, I mean, you touched on it. You, you, you were an art major. You came from SeaWorld. I mean, what was the passion and driver behind, you know, getting to where you did? A lot of people will say, oh, I, you know, I love, I love this team or I love this sport or I always grew up playing this sport. Today, you know, being a fan is great and all, but there's got to be more there, right? Uh, working in sports becomes well, a lifestyle almost. I say, I say it, it when it goes from being your voca your avocation to being your vocation, you have to look at it a little bit differently. Look, I, I've, I've, through osmosis, I've become a huge baseball fan. I, can, I figured it out uh, one day, and I, I, I know Fred's got me beat on this one, is I've been to, you know, 3,000 baseball games. And some of them were night games at Candlestick Park that weren't, you know, weren't all that fun to be at. But I think the point is, is that, it's it really is the entertainment business. I think if you I've said this before when I've spoken about it, you know, I think that and this is a generalization, but there are really four things that most people care about. They care about 
their family. They care about what they do for a living. They, maybe they care about their religion and they care about their sports team. And it's not necessarily in that order. I mean, it's so sports, there's a, people are passionate about it. Um, and so as sort of one of the caretakers of trying to figure it out, our job is in essence to be the, I say, I always say that we're sort of the stagehands that help pull the curtain up and show people what uh, professional sports ought to be. And um, it's evolved so much since I started that I'm still, you know, I'm still proud to talk about it and encourage people to consider it as a career. Absolutely. And obviously you've had, you know, many, many years of experience through it. Um, some people would ask, well, what are you up to now? You know, what are you, what are you doing? What, what would people not know about Pat Gallagher and his passions and his other interests? Well, that's, that, you know. Might be a loaded question there, but. No, it is, it's a loaded question. I, you know, I live up in the Bay Area. Um, we live in San, my wife and I live in San Francisco. Our children have grown, expecting our first grandchild uh, like any day now, Congrats. which would be is, is an amazing thing. We have another, a daughter who lives up in Portland. And what I'm focusing my time on now really is I'm doing some coaching. I mean, some executive type coaching. I'm sitting on a couple of nonprofit and for-profit boards. Uh, I have a real bent toward education. I always sort of, you know, regretted that I didn't take advantage of having a better education. So, you know, I've, I've sort of become a lifelong learner in a lot of other things. Um, so I'm a, you know, I've, I've written a couple of books. Um, I'm actually working on another one. I, about a couple of weeks ago, I did a bucket list item with my brother. We actually drove on Route 66 from Chicago to Santa Monica, um, something that we, we did as a family when I was a little kid. And so we just did it a couple of weeks ago, and it was an, a great adventure that I would encourage anybody to consider. Um, you know, Route 66 is, uh, is not dead. There's a lot of pieces of it that are ghost towns. <laughs> but we took, a, we took, you know, we took two weeks to do it. And so, I, you know, what, I'm a, I, I, what I look for is, you know, I like to spend time with genuine people. Um, I like to do, I still like to draw and paint and do some other things in the sort of the creative vein, but I really mostly like to help younger people in who are getting into the business. And so I, I do tons of informational interviews, sort of anybody that contacts me who had, you know, who just want to talk to somebody who's been in the business. I mean, I do that. Um, the giants were nice enough when I left, they established a fellowship, um, called the Pat Gallagher fellow. And each year they bring in a, it's a highly coveted uh, internship from University of San Francisco that they bring in, people compete for it. They get to work in every department in the Giants. And a number of those people have stayed on or moved on to other good things. I like to joke about it, you know, the, the caliber of people that they have now. I never could have qualified with the, with the, with, with the <laughs> and Andy would say the same know, with the regulations. Oh, no, he would say the same. It's, you know, we, and so the other thing about it is, and Andy and Fred and I, um, are, you know, we all made a living in this business, but we all realized how, how lucky we were to be able to do it. So if we can sort of shed some light on, you know, what it feels like, you know, get some people in the business talking about why they did it, how they do it, whatever, maybe it'll, maybe it'll get some people to think, maybe this is something that I really could do for a career. No, you hit the nail on the head, and, and we will feature yourself and Andy and Fred in, in the coming episodes, but we will eventually uh, here in the next uh, 
few weeks, start to bring on some guest episodes uh, with some of your colleagues that you have worked for uh, that are currently working, you know, that are in your position as well, and, and really shed some light on the rest of the industry, what's behind it, and, and all the little gears that make it move. Um, you know, it was a pleasure having you you speak today on Life in the Front Office. We really enjoyed having you on here and some, some great words of wisdom. And uh, we look forward to the next episode. Well, Jake, it was my pleasure. And I look forward to working with you to sort of help tell the story. <laughs>